You know, when I was growing up, um, I, I had the pleasure of uh, being with my parents and their friends quite a bit. My dad played softball a lot, and so I was with his friends, and uh, I listened to some adult language and conversations at a young age, and that wasn't very good. But one of the things I noticed was um, that these older guys always had hilarious sayings. Um, like one guy used to always say, boy, you're, you're crazier than a pet chicken. And I have no idea what that means. And then another guy, I remember him, he, he would always tell me, boy, there's more than one way to skin a cat. And I'm thinking, what does this man do with his free time? <laughs> That's gross, you know. Um, but what he meant, as you probably know, is there's more than one way to do something. And uh, that's kind of one of those phrases. And I remember one of the first times I ever heard that in real life, like conversation, not just, you know, some, some guy giving me advice. Uh, we were having a conversation about religion and we are having a conversation about God. And, and uh, this person said to me while we were eating together, you know, there's more than one way to skin a cat. And he was referring to the fact that there's more than one way to come to God or there's more than one version of the gospel as you understand it. And I remember thinking to myself, um, how can that be true? And the reason why I remember thinking, how can that be true, is like we saw last week, the Apostle Paul seems to think there's only one gospel and it's the one he preaches. And so if there, in fact, is more than one gospel and there's more than one way to conceive of God and there's more than one way to come to God and all that kind of stuff, then we have a dilemma. Either the one who believes there's a multiple ways is lying or Paul's lying. But they both can't be true. That's in logic called the law of non-contradiction. So you, you, you can't do that. And so I remember sitting there thinking to myself, well, actually, let's have a conversation about that. You can't just say stuff. Um, that's one of my pet peeves is when people just say stuff. There's many ways to God. Um, Paul's lying. Why do you think that? Um, what evidence do you have? You know, as we continue through the series uh, in the book of Galatians called We Are Free, last week we were introduced to how Paul begins to defend his apostolic authority and begins to defend the gospel itself. And today we're going to see how Paul continues the defense of his authority and also the purity of the gospel. And this is important because if it's true when it comes to spiritual matters and religion and when it comes to God and when it comes to the gospel and when it comes to Jesus, that there are many ways to skin a cat, then Paul is a liar. And we have no business listening to him. We have no business listening to anyone associated with him. Because he has deceived the multitudes. So the question is, is he lying? Is the gospel he preached the only one? How would Paul put it? So let's read together Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 17. Paul writes this. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Or, yeah. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you've known my former way of life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. 
And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach to him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So, Father, we need your help because your word is true. But everything in our world and even within our own selves, we're being told it isn't. And so, God, unless you intervene and unless you reveal yourself to us, and unless the Holy Spirit comes and illumines our minds and causes our heart to believe, we'll continue to believe what is not true. So I ask, God, that in our gathering today that you would meet with us, you would teach us. God, that you would give us clarity of thought. God, help us to leave here today with the rock-solid assurance that what Paul preached is true. Jesus is crucified for our sins and risen in victory. And for all who repent and believe this, there is no fear of condemnation and the wrath of God to come. But instead, we are free. So God, teach us these things, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. A quick reminder of where we were last week. You saw in verse 4, where the Apostle Paul then unpacks for us some of the details of the gospel. We see in verse 4 how Paul talks about Jesus, that he willingly, not reluctantly, but willingly gave himself up for us as our substitute to die on a cross by crucifixion. And through his death, the blood that was shed there was an atonement because he substituted himself in our place to pay for the penalty of sins. Even though Jesus had no sin of his own, he took upon himself the sins of those who would believe. And not only that, but it, Paul goes on to say this was in order to deliver us from the present evil age. In other words, what Jesus did in both his death and resurrection liberated us from the domain of darkness. In other words, the dominion of sin that rules over us, the fear that we have of death, the fear that we have of the coming judgment of God, all of that has been liberated from us. We no longer need to fear death. We no longer need to fear the coming judgment because if you repent and believe in the gospel, you are set free from those things. And you are free to live a life which is godly and pleasing. And then we also saw that this is all in accordance with God's eternal plan. That this is no accident or coincidence. And then Paul transitioned into a defense of his apostolic ministry. Some people were accusing Paul of not being a genuine apostle, which means one sent with a message. And they questioned Paul because he was not one of the original 12 apostles. And also because in his preaching and teaching, he wasn't very eloquent. He wasn't very charming. He, he wasn't, you know, one of those people that you could just, I can sit here and listen to him all day. Nothing like that. And so Paul begins to defend his apostolic ministry and authority by saying that the gospel he received in verse 1 is not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul saying, what I preach and my authority to preach does not reside in one man or any collection of people. It comes from God and God alone. 
And you have to remember what I preached last week too. I have to remind us in case all of a sudden you post on social media that maybe Phil had a bad day or something like that. The tone of the text determines the tone of the sermon. And so if I preach a glib sermon full of anecdotal stories and jokes, it will be incongruent. It won't match with what Paul wrote. So what did Paul write? Start in verse 6. Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Paul is astonished. The word can mean flabbergasted, shocked, dismayed. It's a sense in which you are just in unbelief. Your mouth is open going, I have no words. I have no way of comprehending what is happening right here. And what astonishes Paul is that amongst the churches that he planted in the region of Galatia, you can read about that in Acts 13 and 14, that the very same churches Paul planted are now quickly deserting the gospel. He says they are deserting him who called them by the grace of Christ and also turning to a different gospel. And I want you to notice this. What Paul says is you deserting God is the same as distorting the gospel, turning to a different one, or to put it the opposite, when you turn to a different gospel, you are actually deserting God. Just think about that for a moment. When he equates the two, to turn to a different gospel than the one Paul preached, in Paul's mind he's saying that is to completely desert God. Now, we often think that the challenge of turning from the true gospel to false gospels is, is going to come from outside of the church. That's usually what we think of the danger is out there, like the boogeyman. But in reality, when you read the New Testament, what Paul is concerned about, what the authors of the New Testament are concerned about is not so much the danger outside of the church, but they do mention that. That is true. But one of their most fearful um, yeah, what they feared the most was the, was the danger that would come from within the church. We see this actually in Acts chapter 20 where Paul has got the, uh, the Ephesian elders together at the shores of Miletus and, and his parting words to them in verse 28, Paul says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, and the word overseers is elders, to care for the church of God, which... He obtained with his own blood. Paul says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And so there's the outward danger that will come into the church. But then look at verse 30. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Can you imagine that moment when Paul's gathered the elders of the Ephesian church and looks them in the eye and says... From among you, elders, some of you, some of you, you're going to start preaching twisted things. You're going to start, start distorting the gospel. And you are going to draw away disciples after yourselves. No wonder the apostle Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, but false prophets arose from the people in the Old Testament just as there will be false teachers among you, church, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, 
bringing upon themselves swift destruction. You see, the churches in Galatia had turned to a different gospel other than Paul's gospel. And thus they have deserted Christ. This can and often does happen from within the church. This is a reality. Even elders and leaders and people who have high position in the church can slowly and subtly, perhaps imperceptibly, drift. And they drift away from the gospel. And they drift away from God. And what Paul says in verse 7 is really significant. You see, people are turning to a different gospel, and that is bringing dismay and astonishment upon Paul. But then he says in verse 7, not that there is another one. Or in other words, people are turning to a different gospel, but here's the reality, there isn't a different one. He goes on to say, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And so there's only one gospel, but there is an infinite amount of distortions of the gospel. And what Paul's concern is, is that people are turning to another gospel, which isn't really another gospel at all. It's merely a distortion of what Paul preached. And you see, there's an infinite amount of ways to distort the gospel. Basically, it's like this. If you've ever studied math, you know 2 base 10 plus 2 base 10 equals 4 base 10. Everyone knows that. So how many ways can you get that equation wrong? An infinite amount of ways. When there's only one truth, there's an infinite amount of ways to get it wrong. There's one gospel. There's an infinite amount of ways to distort the gospel. And so Paul's reminding them there's only one gospel. And there's a whole bunch of ways to distort it. You see, in our culture today, we have found amazing ways to distort the gospel. And I think the most scary for me is by taking a really good thing and using it to replace the gospel itself. And I don't mean that the thing that has replaced the gospel is in and of itself evil. What I'm saying is it's a good thing that we center our lives on at the exclusion of the gospel. You see, in our culture today, there's the distortion of the gospel called the prosperity gospel, which promises that Jesus is the means to financial gain. We have the gospel of traditional family values, which teaches that Jesus is the way to have a happy marriage and a happy home. We have the gospel of religious tradition, which teaches Jesus is a means to, be, to being in a, a respectable and honorable person in society. We have the gospel of morality, which teaches that Jesus is the way to be a morally upright citizen. We have the gospel of God and country, which teaches Jesus is the way to receive national blessing and prosperity while elevating patriotic citizenship. We have the gospel of self, which teaches Jesus is the way to personal fulfillment and self-actualization. We have the gospel of your best life now, which teaches Jesus is the way that you can live your best life and experience it to the full. Now, there are many good things about those, those things. But the reality is when these things become the center and the focus of a church, they have supplanted the gospel and they are no longer good. They're a distortion of the gospel. So my conviction is this, brothers and sisters, unless we here at Golden Hills Community Church, unless we keep the gospel center, unless we keep Christ the focus of all that we do, Unless we are convinced that all of our singing in church, all of our praying, no matter where it happens, all of the preaching, all of the teaching, all of the counseling, all of the discipleship, 
If all that we do by way of mission and advocacy is centered on the gospel and is focused supremely on the person of Christ, we won't drift from the gospel into other things which will supplant it. And therefore, we won't cause the Apostle Paul in heaven to be dismayed at us. So here's, here's the reality. Every church is prone to wander. We are not the exception. Unless we are vigilant, unless we are proactive about the centrality of the gospel, we can quickly become like the churches in Galatia where the Apostle Paul has an indictment saying, I'm astonished that you would do this. Wow. And so, because distorting the gospel is in effect deserting Christ, and deserting Christ is in effect distorting the gospel, may it never be here at Golden Hills that we do either. You know, some people have asked me, well, what are some of the distortions you're thinking about and stuff? And I don't have enough time to go through them all, but I want to encourage you, read, uh, watch this documentary called American Gospel. You can actually find it uh, to rent or to purchase on Amazon Prime. If not, you can get these online. But I highly encourage you, the first 45 minutes is probably one of the most beautiful presentations of the gospel. It literally caused me to weep. And then I watched the last hour and 15 minutes of the distortions of the gospel and likewise wept. And so I would encourage you, take, take advantage of that. Verse 7, Paul says, there's people who are troubling you. They want to distort the gospel of Christ. These troublemakers... They're distorting the gospel. How? Galatians 2.16 gives us one indication. And we'll talk more about this as we move along in the series. But Paul writes, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And when you jump to chapter 5, verses 2 through 4, the apostle Paul writes, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. How have these people distorted the gospel? Because they said, yes, what Paul preached, that's good. Jesus, yes, Jesus justifies you. Faith in Jesus is what justifies you. We get that. But you know what else? There's a deeper significance to faith in Jesus. You need Jesus plus circumcision. Because if you have Jesus plus circumcision, now you're starting to get experience into the fullness of what it's like to be a person of God. You see, in our culture, we have that same kind of mentality. Jesus is all well and good, but you know what? It's Jesus plus. Man, if I just had Jesus plus a little bit of material prosperity, mm. if I had Jesus plus the evidence of miracles, mm. man, it's just Jesus plus whatever. But the reality is the equation is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And we have to realize that Jesus in and of himself is sufficient. And that's the whole point of the book of Galatians is you are justified in faith alone, through, in faith in Christ alone, and that's it. It's not faith in Jesus plus this other stuff. And so they were distorting the gospel by wandering from the centrality of the reality that it is by grace through faith in Christ alone, according to scripture alone, for the glory of God alone, 
that we are saved. And so Paul writes these words in verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. My goodness. Paul says if we, me, Luke, Timothy, Peter, James, John, Jude, if any of us preach a gospel which is contrary to what you heard me preach this day, even if it's me come back 10 years later and I'm laying out the gospel and it's different than what I originally laid out, or even if it's a celestial being like an angel, may they be accursed. Now we don't use that word accursed very often and for probably good reason. The word is anathema. It is to be cut off, to be destroyed, to be damned, or most provocatively, to go to hell. And so the Apostle Paul is throwing down a hammer. If I, or Peter, or an angel from heaven is to preach a contrary gospel than the one you heard me originally preach, may they and I go to hell. Whoa. And just in case that didn't sink in, the Apostle Paul goes on to write verse 9. As we have said before, so now I say again. If anyone, if any pastor, if any preacher, if any conference speaker, if any national podcast, if any New York Times bestselling author preaches to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, may they go to hell. Holy smokes. What do you do with that? I, I couldn't sleep last night because I knew I had, to, I had to read that verse today. And all week I was tempted to figure out ways to not say that but still say it. There is no way. Paul wrote what he wrote. And what Paul's saying is, if these folks, whoever they may be, come to you and preach something contrary to what I have preached to you, this is a serious error. You know, I heard John Piper say one time this, and it kind of stopped me in my tracks. He, he said, woe to the pastor or worship leader who creates an entertainment atmosphere in their church where this kind of seriousness is out of place. And so I did a little research, and I, I know some major churches that are false teaching churches, and I went to their website and looked at some of the sermons that they preach. Oddly enough, or I guess not shocking, do you know that none of them preach from the book of Galatians? How, how could you preach from the book of Galatians preaching a false gospel and not have people go, I have a question. 
What do you do with this? Do you feel the weightiness of this? And Paul said, if it's a gospel contrary to the one you received. In other words, the gospel that I preached, Paul says, is not something I made up. He said that in verse 1. It's something I have received and I have given to you and you have received it. And so if there's anything that is not what you have received, it's not true. You see, that's the form that Paul took with his preaching of the gospel. You can see it in 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. I want you to slowly reread that in your own time. But then he goes on and he explains what the gospel is. In short, he says, for I delivered to you, I'm delivering to you, as a first importance, what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Saphos, who was Peter, and then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time who are still alive. They can vouch for this. And eventually Paul says, Jesus appeared to me. And so what we see is the whole purpose of Paul's ministry, the whole purpose of the church really, is that we are to receive the gospel. And in receiving the gospel through faith, we are then supposed to deliver the gospel to others. That's the point of discipleship. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, where the apostle Paul writes, whatever you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The idea is this, Christian discipleship is receiving the gospel through faith, then looking at others and delivering that very gospel so that they will repent and believe it by faith and that they would take what they have repented and believed by faith and they would then pass it on to the next. And so it's generation after generation after generation of gospel entrusting, gospel witness, gospel sharing, gospel deliverance. And I don't know why we water down discipleship and just how to be a good employee. The gospel shapes those things, but that is not the point of Christian discipleship. Christian discipleship is we are to pass down the once and for all delivered faith. In fact, Jude wrote about this. He writes this in verse 3, beloved. I was very eager to write to you about our, and notice this, common salvation. It's what we hold in common. He says, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for, and then look at the phrase, the faith. Singular, definite article, the faith. Not a faith, your faith, the way you perceive faith. The faith, which was, or that was once for all, once for all, which means not supplemented, not changed, not augmented, not deleted from, not added to. That was once and for all delivered to the saints. Contend for the gospel. Why? 
because, verse 4, certain people have crept in to the church unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel that Paul preached is meant to be preserved. It's meant to be believed. But how the gospel Paul preached is best preserved is when it is shared. When we deliver it and others receive it by faith. And then Paul writes about the fact that he is free from people pleasing. He says, for now am I for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. You see, Paul's gospel and apostleship is not based on any man or any group of men. His authority and his message was given to him from Christ. And therefore, because his message is not from man and because... His authority was not given to him from any man. Paul is now free to say the hard things to people. Because he's been commissioned by God to say it. And therefore he has all the reason in the world to follow through on what he's been told to do by God. Now what's really interesting about this is nobody will say hard things to other people if people-pleasing is something that you are committed to. You tracking with me, church? If people-pleasing is something that is a concern for you, you will always have one eye on whether or not people like you, whether or not people approve of you, whether or not people are pleased with you. And because of that, you will rarely, if ever, say anything that is hard. What if they don't like me? And yet at the same time, if you think about the gospel, how in the world can you have your life centered on the gospel in a people-pleasing way? The gospel is so offensive that just reading about it, you're like, geez. For instance, how in the world do you share the good news, but you omit sin? What makes the news good? Well, you have to start with sin. And if you eliminate sin, then you don't really have any reason to share good news. You just have news. And what about repentance? You mean I actually need to quit living the way I'm living? Who are you to tell me how to live my life? That kind of thing. But yeah, uh, remember Jesus says the time is at hand. The kingdom of God is among us. Do what? Repent and believe the gospel. So if we say, uh, let's not talk about repentance, then, then all of a sudden you're saying, eh, Jesus, I know he said that, but he didn't mean it. So what, what news then are you going to share? You got rid of the good, but now you're saying the news Jesus came to proclaim, we also need to get rid of that. What about faith? You have to believe. We'll believe in what? Jesus was crucified for your sins. Yeah, but we don't do sin. Well, that you need to repent and believe. Well, yeah, but we don't do repentance. What are you left with? You're left with a hippie Jesus frolicking through the fields with his homies. 
singing, you're good, I'm good, we're good, everyone's good, happy, happy. What about the whole indictment to die to self? Take up your cross daily. Deny yourself. Follow me. Yeah, but isn't God really, I mean, I mean he's, he's not about you not experiencing your dreams. He's about helping you actualize your dreams. I don't know how to even remotely put in the same conversation the denial of sin, repentance, the wrath of God, faith in a crucified and risen Messiah, and the fact that you needed to deny yourself on a daily. I have no idea how to conceive of that and somehow to call that gospel or Christian for that matter. I have no concept for that. And the reason I have no concept for it is because the Apostle Paul doesn't. You see, F.F. Bruce, he writes this. He says, the gospel preached by Paul is not the true gospel because Paul preached it. It is the true gospel because the risen Christ gave it to Paul to preach. The authentication of the gospel is not that Paul's a great guy. The authentication of the gospel is go to a tomb and find no body in it. Jesus is risen. And that risen Jesus confronted Paul and told Paul, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I am Jesus. Here's the gospel. I am Jesus. Now go and spread my name among the nations. And so Paul went. So we read in verse 11, that's why Paul says, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. I didn't invent this. Nobody gave it to me. Verse 12, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through revelation of Jesus Christ. I came to know Jesus risen from the, from the dead because he met me. I talked to him. I know what he looks like. I know what his... His voice sounds like. What do you do with this kind of information? You see, here's Paul whose life overlapped with Jesus Christ in the first century. Here's Paul, a man who claims to be an eyewitness of Jesus, risen from the dead like the other apostles and over 500 other people. Here's Paul <laughs> claiming to have had direct contact with Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. And claims to have been given authority by him to preach the gospel. And claims to have been given the very content of the message to preach by Jesus himself. What do you do with that kind of information? Well, probably one of three options. One, you conclude Paul's a straight liar. He never met Jesus. He's lying through his teeth. He made this junk up. You see, it's all a sham. Maybe Paul's just, you know, using religion to advance his personal agenda. He's just going to see what might come of it. Now, you need to stop and think about the implications of that. Ask yourself this question. Why would someone make up a lie and then be willing to be stoned almost to death by the way, in the region where he planted the churches of Galatia, be whipped within a thread of his life, be beaten with rods, face hunger, face persecution. Not only that, but then ultimately to be beaten in prison and then finally beheaded. 
Let me ask you this question. Why would somebody go through all of that for something they know is an absolute lie? Now, I understand some people will go through hell and back for something they believe to be true, even though it turns out it may be false. I get that. People may suffer tremendously for things they think is true, but nobody willingly gets their head chopped off for what they absolutely know is a fat old lie. Any of us who have kids, they stole something, you know it, and you said, you steal? Uh-uh, didn't do it. All right, well, you're going to be on punishment and you might get the backhand on your butt. Here it is. You see, no one's going to endure the punishment of a parent for what they know is a lie, even at three years old. You tell me a grown man is actually going to let his head be chopped off for what he knew he made up? That's off the table. All right, so maybe Paul's just a madman. Maybe this fool is out of his mind. He is deluded madman. Maybe he had a hallucination. He ate something crazy. Started seeing things. Well, here's the thing, though, is when you read Paul's writings, you don't get the impression that he is crazy. And in fact, when you read his travel accounts in the book of Acts, you don't see anyone ever saying that Paul is a lunatic or out of his mind, except for one time. (laughs) Acts chapter 26, Festus, where Paul is saying he's seen the risen Jesus, says... Paul, your great learning has made you crazy. Maybe Paul is crazy. Except for then Paul defends himself by saying, nope, I speak rational words and you know it. These events didn't happen without you noticing King Herod who was there. And what do they conclude at the end of that council? Paul's not worthy of death. He's not crazy. We just don't believe what he's preaching. So even Paul's enemies don't believe that he's a crazy man. So if he's not lying and he's not a crazy man, what's our third option? Paul's telling the truth. Paul is flat out telling the truth. Paul is an apostle with the very authority of God to preach the true gospel of Jesus because he met Jesus risen from the dead. It's true. Here's the seriousness of the matter, though. Your heart will naturally gravitate to one of those three options. And your eternity hangs in the balance. Because you can't just say, uh, uh, whatever. There's many ways, not just Paul's. You can't just say stuff like that. Because if you say, nah, that's one way to do it. That's, that's only Paul's opinion then what you must conclude is, well, then Paul says there's only one way and his authority to say such a thing is the risen Jesus. So if Paul's way is not the only way, then Paul's a liar or he's a crazy man. That's your only options. Or he's telling the truth. Now, Paul makes us the evidence of him telling the truth, verse 13 and 14. He recalls back to his former way of life. He said, look, I made this claim that my gospel came from Jesus and and I'm going to supply some evidence. He says, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Verse 14, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. You see, what Paul does is the evidence he provides is his old way of life. His old way of life was marked with violent opposition 
to the church. Acts chapter 9 verses 1 and 2 say that Paul tried to get letters or did get letters from the chief priests in order to go find churches in Damascus in order to snuff them out. He was breathing fiery, murderous accusations against the disciples and against Christians. He hated the Messiah named Jesus. He hated the church. He wanted to extinguish the church from the face of the earth. He hated it so much that he actually approved of a man named Stephen being stoned to death, who was a preacher of the gospel. There's Paul saying, yes, that's what I want. More death, bloodshed the end of the Christian church. And Paul says that he was excelling beyond many other people. He was a young high achiever. He had all kinds of accolades and all kinds of people respected him. In Philippians 3, 5 and 6, he talks about how great of a persecutor of the church he was, how he had all of these credentials. And so when somebody says, well, maybe Paul just made this all up and he was kind of pursuing his own agenda. He was trying to self-promote. You just have to stop and go, this is the most ridiculous thing I ever heard. The man had it all as a Jew. The man had it all as a Pharisee. He had education, he had wealth, he had prestige, he had accolades, he had respect, he had reputation. People wanted to be Paul. They named their kids after Paul. And you're telling me that he became a Christian to advance his life when what happened to him after he became a Christian was he lost everything. He began to be hated. He began to be beaten. The persecutor became the persecuted. The man who approved of stoning people who preached the gospel, he became stoned because he was preaching the gospel. Holy smokes. Professor Tim, Tom Schreiner says this, you have to realize Paul did not volunteer to serve as an apostle. He was not summoned by God and he was summoned by God in a compelling way. And so his service as an apostle can only be ascribed by the grace of God. That God appointed forgiveness of his sins to him. That's why we read in verse 15. But when he had set me apart from before I was born and who called me by his grace, he was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. He says, I did not immediately consult with anyone. You see, Paul was set apart to be an apostle from the very beginning. But think about this, brothers and sisters. Let me ask this question. How in the world can God call someone to be a messenger of the gospel without them also being a believer of the gospel? You can't. I mean, you can if you're a hypocrite, but God doesn't, like, endorse hypocrisy. So for God to call Paul to be an apostle, he simultaneously called Paul to be a Christian. And therefore, the forgiveness of sins Paul received at conversion is also the commission Paul receives to be a gospel minister. Brothers and sisters, that has something, that says something about what it means to be a Christian. When you have your sins forgiven, it's not just your get out of hell free card. Your sins are forgiven and you are put on a mission simultaneously. So how does Paul authenticate his claim that he's seen the risen Jesus? His evidence is his radically transformed life. Paul says, my way of life before I knew Jesus, as you can tell, hated the church, persecuted the church. But then he says, 
God was pleased, verse 16, to reveal his son to me. And my life radically transformed. What happened to Paul? What is it that happened to Paul that caused him to be a radical persecutor and violent oppressor of the church? That he's now being violently persecuted because he's a church planter and preacher of the gospel. There's only one explanation, brothers and sisters. He met Jesus. It was the Damascus Road where Jesus appeared to Paul. The only explanation is Paul's telling the truth. He met Jesus risen from the dead. And Jesus told Paul, here's what you are to preach. And Paul said, okay. And Jesus said, preach this among the nations. Go. So brothers and sisters, there is only one gospel. And it is the gospel that Paul preached. And we know that to be true because Jesus is risen from the dead. And that risen Jesus met Paul and told him everything he needed to know and gave him the authority to preach. I don't ever want to be a church that causes people like Paul to be astonished. My prayer is that we as a church would understand that everything we do needs to be centered on the gospel. Christ needs to be center in everything. And that when God called us to himself by his grace, he not only forgave us of our sins, but he put us on a mission. Because the best way to preserve the gospel is to share it. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to deliver the gospel, for it must be received. And so, Father, we ask that you would do that for us. God, cause within us a passion and a desire to have the gospel be made known among the nations. God, I pray that you would protect us from the evil one, but we would, as a church, know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the gospel we preach, that we pray, that we sing, that we counsel, that we disciple others with is the one true gospel. The gospel Jesus gave Paul, Paul gave Timothy, Timothy gave the Ephesians, and on and on until it came to us. God, would you help us to be counted among those people who deliver the gospel? In Jesus' name.